0: Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast, particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know, someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up, reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school, like I am, drop me an email detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and take care. Some of my experiences with guests have been so awesome that I've invited them back for seconds. As this podcast ages, you're probably going to start seeing that a little bit more and more. Here's a case in point. This episode's guest is Cornell, Deja Woodson. When we last spoke with Cornell back in episode 45, he was just settling in as the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Meditation App Headspace. Our follow-up conversation charts his professional and personal growth over the last year and a half. We talk about the stresses that come with being a public and private champion of diversity and equity. We go deep on his thesis paper, which is based around white male allyship. We get to talk about Cornell's coming out experience and his closest relationship with his mom. Uh, Cornell also draws plenty of wisdom about self-care and gives us some insight on being a married man and a West Coast convert. This conversation was so healing for me, and I hope it serves a similar function to you. Please welcome Cornell back to Detoxicity.
1: Well, hello everyone. My name is Cornell Verdeja Woodson. I don't know if I was at Headspace the last time we talked, but just in case, you I'm were director of diversity. I was okay. A director of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at what we now call Headspace Health. I do know that we merged since I last talked to you. So we merged with a company called Ginger and now we're called Headspace Health.
0: I've heard of Ginger. So you were on, I want to say it was maybe about a year and a half ago. And we talked about a whole bunch of stuff, including you were just starting out at Headspace. It was definitely uh, the very, years? very,
1: very beginning. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So tell me what's been going on the last year and a half. What's new. What's exciting.
1: Oh man. Well, I'm working on my dissertation. So that's a big piece of what's been busy and really exhausting. And it's come down to the wire. So I graduate May, 2023, and we are writing chapters. So right now I'm trying to finish up my chapter three and my dissertation is on the motivation of white heterosexual cisgendered men and senior leadership roles to become DEIB advocates within their company. So I'm focusing on white men who have been identified By people from historically excluded groups as the EIB advocates and trying to understand what was it that motivated you to do this and compare that to some of the white men who do not engage right so how did you overcome those barriers what moved the needle for you so I'm really excited about the research and it's been a labor of love trying to just get it written
0: (laughs) how did you decide on that as a topic of your dissertation because that's fascinating to me
1: yeah so I've been in this work for over 10 years. I think it's like 13, 14 years now. And when you think about the, every initiative, no matter what, needs buy-in from senior leaders, right? And research shows 80 to 90% of senior leaders within corporate America, both in the UK and in the US, are white men. And white men are one of the hardest groups to get to engage. So if we need their buy-in and because their lack of buy-in can completely thwart any of our efforts, to me, they seem to be the missing link to actually moving things along. So converting them to DEIB advocates, I think is crucial for us to actually diversify our organizations as well as create cultures and systems of belonging and equity that we need really, really badly. So that was the focus of like, so how do we do that? How do we get them there? What are other white men saying? What is the literature saying as well?
0: Right. I would imagine that... Actually, I'm not even going to imagine anything. I I am curious if you've seen any commonalities in the people that you've spoken to about what their journey was getting to a point where they realized that diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. I've actually not heard the B part used before, but it totally makes sense. Uh-huh. Uh, I- I'm wondering if you're finding any commonalities within journeys or if everybody's just got like a different circuit to get to where they got.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't started that portion of the process yet. So okay. right now it's a proposal, but the literature does have there's very limited literature that focuses on White men who are already in the work, right? Most of the literature is focused on the white men who are not and the reasons why. And this one study that I found was from 1997 and that focused on white men who were DEIB advocates and that researcher actually used the same, I got this method from him where he got a group of people who identified as gay, queer, trans. Well, no, back then, that probably, he, he didn't use trans. But gay, queer, Black, Latinx, et cetera. And said, who would you identify as DIB advocates? And he got that list. And the themes that came out of that was personal interaction, right? I know someone who I have a personal relationship with that really helped me see things differently. Role models of other white men who were doing it and showing them how it was done. And then the cross-cultural education that tends to happen. So those were the two biggest things. Role models, personal relationship, but also even a personal experience of discrimination. Knowing Mm. how it feels and going, wow, this is not cool. This is what people are talking about. That kind of sparred the revelation of, yeah, no, we need to stop this.
0: So I have a question, which is, when would a cisgendered white male experience, and I guess I'll make the distinction here, a cisgendered heterosexual white male Mm -hmm. encounter discrimination of any sort?
1: Well, if you ask them, it comes up quite often. Some of the things that the literature talks about and think about some of the identities outside of those four that we just mentioned, right? So like disability, veteran Mm. status, religion, right? Also Mm. could be dependent on their religion. So those could be some areas in which they might experience some discrimination, but also white men will tell you, even if they have all the privilege in the world, feel that because other white men are crappy, that I automatically get deemed as crappy. And therefore, that feeling of discrimination that you're putting an assumption on me without getting to know me, that might be an area where I go, well, I don't like how that feels. Now, most white men, that makes them hate DEIB efforts, right? <laughs> and But then there are some who go, whoa, okay. I know how that feels, and they're willing to acknowledge that it's drastically different from what Black people, latin a people, women experience, but I understand the emotion of, oh, I don't like being assumed or being disregarded because you had some one-off experience or whatever that may be, right? So they, t- they kind of understand it, and it's enough of an empathy to get them to go, okay, this is not cool, and if I didn't like it, I know these other groups who are experiencing it in a much harsher way, I know that it's really harming them as well. But most of the time, it's more of the, I know someone and it's someone role modeled what it looked like.
0: I did a talk recently about um, equity and inclusion in, in polyamorous and sex positive spaces. And except for the person that I did the discussion with, everybody there was white.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And really confirmed for me how important empathy and exposure therapy for lack of a better term to use is right because I don't know we both grew up on the east coast right maybe it's not specific to the east coast maybe it's specific to the tri-state area but we grew up in environments where there were people that were not like us but also we're black people and we're queer black people so when the Mm -hmm. default for the world is white and You get your exposure therapy before you even realize who you are almost.
1: Right, right.
0: And it seems to me that the people who are the least far along on this journey are people who grow up in environments where there is not any diversity. Exactly. And common sense would dictate that exposure therapy will change minds. But how do we get people who are not in those environments on a regular basis to walk into those environments and live in their discomfort and do what they need to do to move the needle.
1: I think we have to change the perception of what discomfort is. Like Discomfort oftentimes feels dangerous. It feels unsafe. So when we talk about being uncomfortable, it's like, why would I ever do that? Right. I think that we had to have a conversation around moments where we felt uncomfortable, but it was good for us. I remember growing up every time I went to the next grade, I was severely uncomfortable with like, oh crap, I'm going to have to perform at a different level. And can I do it? It was uncomfortable for me. When I Mm. learned how to do a new skill, it was uncomfortable for me in trying to do this new thing that I didn't have confidence in. I knew it was good for me, right? And so I think we have to do the same thing. That Yeah, it's uncomfortable walking into a situation in which you have no information about how to engage, how to behave and how to do it. You're going to make mistakes, but owning those mistakes is a part of the process and it's good for you because look at what you stand to benefit from. Now that's straight up interest convergence, right? Because what I don't want is people to only want to do these things because they benefit from something. But I do believe that it is how I would argue a lot of us as human beings tend to operate, right? Like I'm not going to do something that is uncomfortable unless I know that it benefits me. That's sure. just, just reality of it. And so I think we can start there. And I think eventually eventually, in my belief, is that people see that benefit, but they also see that it's the right thing to do because when everyone thrives, we all thrive. But showing them that picture, I think, is necessary. Now, I'm not saying that that works for everyone, but I do think that there is a middle group that is kind of like, I want to, I'm just really nervous and concerned. I'm seeing what happens when people make mistakes. But how do we get them to lean into that discomfort? It's giving them, them examples of how discomfort can lead to Benefit can lead to greater good, in my opinion.
0: Amen to that. I may have even asked this last time. I think it's mm-hmm. more present to me now. You're doing a lot of work. And mm-hmm. I think there's a certain part of this type of work that we just have to do as minorities in general. But you're opting into a lot of the work. Or are you taking care of your in the midst of deliberately putting in this work?
1: I think a big part of it for me is surrounding myself with people who I can kind of like vent to. Therapy is one. I go to therapy every Monday. So that's a place where I unpack so much stuff and really have my space to like let it out. But I think surrounding myself with like-minded people, people who kind of get it, people who are also doing it. Like one of my good friends is is a white guy who we talk DEIB all the time. And and to someone who can validate and kind of go like, yes, you are not tripping, that is real. And so it it gives you that outlet. So that, and then also just finding time to, to get away. So next week, my husband and I are actually working from Mexico for two months. Okay. We're changing our environment in order to just be in a different space. And sometimes that change of space can really rejuvenate you. I'm taking the first two weeks off. So just really putting that time on the calendar to choose myself and fill my own cup before I get back into trying to fill others and support others. So all those things are very intentional. And we plan a vacation months in advance. We know where we're going next year. We're going to Brazil, right? Because we know that we have to have that in place in order for us to take care of ourselves.
0: How did you learn to become so deliberate about this stuff like intentional Um, is such a great word yeah i would say it started
1: after college i started realizing that so much of my self-worth so much of my happiness all the good stuff was always reliant on other people right connection to other people acceptance from other people and it got really bad from a mental health standpoint. I had moved to Atlanta to do Teach for America. And I said, I'm going to learn to be by myself, to spend time by myself and love being by myself to the point where I would prefer it <laughs> being by myself. Right. And I got really good at it. I went to dinner by myself. I went to the movies by myself. And it just really changed the game for me. Yeah, people still get on my nerves and they still have an impact on me sometimes. Yeah, I still like when people applaud me or say I I accept you, whatever. That's the human nature. But it's at the foundation of my self-worth and my happiness, right? And I think that's really crucial. And so as I've gotten older, I just keep adding on things, right? So probably... Sometime when I was working in higher education, therapy became a really important thing, realizing that I need someone who has professional skills to help me unpack some of my past traumas and past experiences that are creeping up today and impacting how I connect with other people and things that sort. So I think it really started after college, just a sense of self-awareness and doing something about it. Not just being aware of it and going, yep, I know that's there, but actually implementing things that will help me mitigate the impact of those things. And help me live a happier life.
0: That's amazing. Those first stages of learning to live with yourself and be by Mm -hmm. yourself, was that difficult?
1: It was. So I lived with a bunch of people uh, my last year in college. And if I came home and no one was home, the stories that I would make up in my head about, well, why didn't they tell me that they were going to be out? Mind you, they weren't always with each other. They were 9 out of the 10, somewhere completely separate. But I made the story up in my head that, oh, they went out without me, right? And that's when I knew, it was like, oh, this is getting bad. So it was hard because I had been so used to being around people. But I think what motivated me was the benefit of being uncomfortable, (laughs) right? Like it was terribly uncomfortable, but I knew what I stood to gain by learning to be to love myself and be good not just accepted and tolerated but like love and really enjoy being by myself and learning more about myself
0: everything you're saying is resonating with me so much Uh (laughs) and this is why i love talking to you because it's just like a your spirit is so like positive and warm and I can only speak from my experience as a black man. I don't know anybody else's experience, but I feel like Mm -hmm. so many of our people are not taught these things. We're not taught to take care of ourselves. We're not taught to sit with our thoughts and constructively think about things and make changes like that. And obviously there's a long, long history. There's 500 years of trauma that we're still trying to to reckon with right and there has been a lot of progress made in the last couple of years particularly with regards to the acknowledgement of mental wellness in the black community and physical wellness in the black community for that matter Mm -hmm. and i'm wondering what we can do maybe not so much so there's two kind of subgroups of people that i think need to hear stuff maybe a little bit more keenly and that's the older generation folks who Mm -hmm. were maybe 50, 55 and up folks who went through the civil rights movement, folks who definitely received a lot of that, a spare the rod, spoil the child type of, of growing up. And the other sort of subgroup I think is young, particularly young heterosexual black men. Mm -hmm. So young, straight or straight passing black men. Mm -hmm. And how do we reach those people?
1: I think it's a retraining of the mind, right? I I think you said it really well. We have been groomed to believe this is how you navigate the world. This is how you show emotion. This is how you deal with conflict. This is how you deal with these things. This is good. This is bad. It's been so heavily ingrained. And so we have to retrain. We have to reteach. We have to debunk the myths. We have to model what it looks like. In the last number of years, I've been seeing much more on social media more and more Black men showing emotion, and showing love to each other, not even just their partners, but to each other as two heterosexual men loving on each other, right? We need to see more of that example. So when all we've ever seen is the other side where you don't show love, you don't say I love you, don't give hugs, you don't express yourself in a healthier way, that's what we operate under, right? But when I start seeing the model of like, oh, this is possible, This is a way to engage and it is acceptable, right, as well. And here's what I stand to benefit when I release those emotions of pain and hurt and trauma, then it becomes more normalized. So we've got to socialize that as a way to navigate what we're experiencing, what we're feeling and what we've experienced in the past. But without that, we're not going to get anywhere.
0: And then how do we talk to people who are so ingrained in this thinking like older folks it's so hard to change minds and going through that to an extent with my parent i mean i'm just now starting a relationship with my dad i'm pretty sure Sure. my dad didn't know any queer men or definitely wasn't friendly with any queer men and now he's got a a queer ass son yeah
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and he's making the effort i think he wants to do the right thing even though he's still very uncomfortable Talking about it, which I know because he hasn't really brought it up yet. Um, uh-huh. I think he wants to make the effort. And yeah. he understands that if he's going to have a relationship with me, then this is something that he's right. going to have to accept. That's right. But how do we get these older folks talking about stuff like this? And this, I,
1: I love this question because it's same for any other group that is really hard to get to kind of understand and see the other side. It takes time. Right. And I know that sounds like a, that's your answer. It takes constant, like attempts, constant conversations, constant dialogues, constant accountability measures, right. Of like, no, we can't use that language. Right. And constantly coming back because I don't know how old your father is, but to say he's 50 years old, we're not going to undo 50 years of how they've always operated in two, three years, right? Right. It's going to take the constant, like, I'm not going to let this go. If you want this relationship with me, this is what matters. But I also think it means us understanding where they come from. And this is where people get real, like, I got to understand the person oppressing me. Any good lawyer goes into the courtroom, not only understanding their side, they understand the other side as well, because they know how to come back and go, yeah, but hey, this, right? And they also understand the emotion behind what's there. A prime example for me, I didn't have a relationship with my father for the first 18 years of my life. I actually hated this man, because I just thought he was just this horrible human being who wreaked havoc wherever he went. And it wasn't until I stopped for a second, I forget who convinced me to do it, but someone said what his life has been like. And I was like, why would I care? He's been this asshole this entire time. And I literally stopped and learned a little bit more about what his life was like, right? His rejection from his father, right? His mother mistreating him. Just a series of events. I was like, whoa. You make sense to me now. I'm not accepting the behavior. I'm just acknowledging and understanding of how we got where we are. And I'm using that to drive how I try to build this relationship. And lo and behold, my father and I do have a much better Relationship, right? But understanding him was really key to me embarking on that journey. So I think it's the same thing with the older generation. It's the same thing with white men. It's the same thing with straight people, white women. Unfortunately, we've got to understand how did you come to be you? How did we even get here? Why are you the way you are? So I can use that to begin the process and the journey on my end to making some change.
0: I agree with you. One thing that's come up in conversation recently is when people who are oppressed get to a point where they're tired of understanding? For sure. For sure. Which I think is valid because the work of understanding can be difficult when there's a a power dynamic at play and you're on the bottom end of that power dynamic. That's right. What would you say to people who are just like, I can't, this is too much for me?
1: I would say I agree, right? Because it's a two-way street. So when I talk about under knowledge and awareness of this other group, right, that, that's not an, an attempt to go all oh, poor them. That's not be so mean to them because look at what they've right. I just need to know the facts. But it's a two way street, right? So if you want me to sit and come to the table and actually hear from you about why you are the way you are, then you've got to be willing to come to the table to understand how who you are impacts me, mm. right? And you got to be able to come to the table willing to acknowledge that how you currently are ain't working. and I can understand you and we can hold space for that, but change still has to come, right? Like We still got to move that. And I've I've been dealing with this personally at work and in most most places in my life where I always come with the, okay, I want to understand, but if you're going to constantly meet me with hostility at some point, I do have a breaking point and I'm no longer here to understand you. I'm here to break you. Right. And that sounds mad, like aggressive, but it just is what it is. Because if you're not going to heed to the opportunities where I'm trying to come amicably for us to just learn and understand each other, and you just want to constantly come with me with the gaslighting and the discrimination and the disrespect, I'm going to eventually meet you with the same energy. What did Candy say? I ain't Michelle Obama. When you go low, I go low with you. (laughs) I'm not going to keep being the good one or the mature one or all the ways we do in order to convince people to not do what the other person does. At some point, I've got to meet you with that same energy. I say the same thing about Democrats and Republicans. The Republicans don't give a damn about how much they piss us off. The Democrats are always trying to find ways to work with them at some point you've got to realize the game nope. is being played yep. and you've got to fight back this in the same way. I'm sorry. Yep. So again, I have multiple tools in my toolbox. One of them is trying to understand you and come to the table for mutual understanding. But please believe I can pull out the other one that also meets you with the same energy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are speaking my language, Cornell. Right. How do you think your journey and your life's work has been affected by your queerness. Now, I can't remember if you identify as queer or as gay. Queer. Uh, Okay. How do Mm -hmm. you think your queerness has impacted your journey or defined your journey or set you on on this path?
1: I mean, most people, I believe, who get into this work intentionally started off on this path because of their marginalized identity, right? And I go by queer or gay, but as a queer Black person who grew up in a low-income environment, my experience with inequity and discrimination and oppression, that drove my reason for wanting to make change. But it isn't the only reason I stay in the work, right? It is the lens which I oftentimes look through things, but now as a leader in this work, I also need to look at it from a women's lens, a trans lens, right? And ensure that my advocacy and my leadership is not just about my Blackness and my low-income experience and my queerness, but it's also about all the other voices that I am trying to help and support and ally with as well. So it has to be much much more than just about me, but it is the reason why I've gotten started.
0: Uh-huh. As you walk through the world, like in your workspace, do you feel like people are often unafraid, or not unafraid, are often afraid to ask you specific questions or to approach you a certain way because they know that you're Black and queer and they don't want to catch residuals from that.
1: Uh Oh my goodness. They make assumptions all the time about how I might respond or what kind of energy I might bring, but then they hear me and they go, oh, wow. And they don't say it, but I know they're thinking, wow, you're a lot nicer than I thought you would be. Right. Because we're always the angry black man Mm -hmm. and it's just really, 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 really frustrating. But yeah, for sure. I always get people who are definitely afraid and you can tell, even when they do attempt to approach me, you can just hear the fear of like, I cannot mess this up. I do not want to get cussed out. And it's like, I don't always meet you that way, right? If you're multiple times, I'm giving you chances and you keep, yeah, you can get cussed out, but that's not the way I'm going to approach you the very first time, right? right. Like, I'm going to own the fact that you made a mistake. All right, I'm going to correct you. I'm going to meet you with, with a challenge, but it's going to be in a way that creates space for you to to acknowledge that, yeah, we made a mistake. It happens. I make mistakes and we can bounce back from it. When you don't own it, that's when you get these words. <laughs> That's when you get it. it.
0: I love it. Now you are based on the West Coast now.
1: Yeah. Uh huh.
0: You grew up on the East Coast.
1: Uh huh.
0: I'm, I'm gonna ask you to to pick sides.
1: <laughs> I'm never leaving the West Coast. Really? Never leaving the West Coast. I I'm, can't do the cold. I can't do the snow. I couldn't even go back down to Atlanta. I love the West Coast.
0: What is it? Weather aside. What is it right. that draws you to the West Coast? I don't
1: know. I feel freer here. I th- it's just this feeling of being able to really, truly be myself. And I also think I'm biased by the fact that I met my husband here. So there's that sentimental value here a- a- as well. So there's a lot of positive emotion connected to this space. Sure. Um, and I also entered into a whole new level of economic wealth. Here. So mm-hmm. there's just so many things that happened here that I'm like, oh, this is my spot. So I drive down the highway, you see the mountains and the nature on one side, and you see the big city on the other side. I'm like, I got everything right here, and it feels like home. I was telling someone the other day, I've lived in many places in my life, and moving to California was the first time I had completely unpacked every single box. Oh wow! Every other place I had ever been. I had always had one or two boxes that never, maybe even three boxes that just were never unpacked that I just never felt. And I didn't intentionally do it. I just was like, oh no, we'll just keep that packed. And here everything came out boxes. Everything had a home. And to me, that was a sign like, this is your long-term place. That
0: I don't know that I've ever felt like that before. That's an interesting observation. Right, right, right. I, I, I want that. Oh. Right. This is where I'm going to be. Right. So, no more snow for you. No. (laughs) I I cannot.
1: Like, when I talk to to my friends back on the East Coast, and they're like, yeah, I'm out here warming up the car. I'm like, mm, that sounds... (laughs) Call me back. (laughs) Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) Right. And she'll see that, like, it's pitch black where she is, and it's, like, still bright. Like, it's summer. She's like call me tomorrow. Like, she don't even want <laughs> to talk to me because she's just like, <laughs> like, I can't. I just cannot do it.
0: I cannot. I will not do it. <laughs> I feel you. I, I got to ask, you brought your mom up. Has she been supportive throughout your journey? My journey within DEIB
1: work or as as a queer Black Yes.
0: Man? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Um,
1: yeah. So, I mean, you, you hear the jokes around, your parents never really can understand what you do for a living. Mm. So... My mom says, oh, he's the president of diversity at and so-and-so. It's like, that's not what my title is, but I appreciate the the up level. But, but no, she knows that I work and try to create equity and equality and things of that sort. Like She'll call me when she reads something and go, what do you think about this? And we have a two-hour conversation. So she's super, super supportive. I think she does sometimes, though, worry about how the work impacts me mentally because I get very wrapped up in it and emotional like it bothers me all the time and so i think she does really want me to make sure i'm constantly maintaining my mental health and not allowing the work to consume me and then as a queer black man from day one my mom has always been like like yeah like okay so my coming out story when i told her that i was gay she was like yeah i'm your mom i knew and i was like oh word you knew and didn't tell me that would have been nice but she just was always supportive. My coming out story was is a beautiful one that just was met with so much love and affirmation.
0: And what was your coming out story, if you don't mind sharing?
1: So I was a first year student in, in college. And that was when I realized that, yeah, I'm definitely gay. Back then, the gay was the term that I used. I was like, OK, I got to tell my mom. Me and my mom are besties. I don't keep secrets from my mom. And uh, so I go home for Thanksgiving break. And I'm like, I'm going to tell her. I go out to dinner with my aunt, my dad's sister. And she goes, yeah, because when the baby comes, they're going to need more space. I'm like, baby, who's pregnant? She's like, your mom. I was like, no, she's not. My mom would tell me she's pregnant before she told you. Like, me and my mom are besties. And so I'm like, what are you talking about, girl? And so she knocks me off. I go home. And, look, and my mom has her coat off now. So when I first saw her, she had a coat on when I first got home. And I see her. And she has a big belly. She has a bump. and I'm like you're pregnant. And she's like, yeah. And she's like, oh shit. It's like, who told you? I'm like, my aunt told me. And so she was nervous to tell me because she didn't want me to worry. So me, her and my dad went into the other room and we're talking like, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, we didn't want you to, to worry. We wanted you to focus on being away at college. Because I was a a big provider in that home, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it was financially or babysitting or picking up. I've been doing that since I was eight years old. And my dad isn't always the most reliable, right? And so I felt like it was going to put more pressure on me to have to be there. But she actually didn't want me to feel that way, so I was pissed. And so I said, "Well, since we all got secrets, I got one for you. I'm gay. How you like that one?" And she's like, "Seriously, this is how you're going to do that?" I was like, no. "Petty." We're all keeping secrets, right? So let's just <laughs> all
0: share them. And, and, and
1: so, I, in true Aries fashion, I came out as a vendetta. <laughs> wow. Mom. And we still, was like,
0: okay, thanks. <laughs> and, and, and were, that's yeah. too funny. And I, I would assume immediately it was just like, well, okay, now we've both divulged our little secrets. We can move on with uh-huh. life. And that's amazing. That's like, I... I love stories like that. It's funny to me because I had a conversation with my mom recently and she pulled the I've been new card. Mm -hmm. And and I've been reading a lot. Like Tevin's been in the news lately. And Uh people are like, oh, we've been new. And I think there's some talk that really needs to be had around the, oh, of course I already knew. But where was your support? Where was your acknowledgement when I was going through my changes and when these people were going through their changes and they might've needed some support career-wise or, or personally-wise or, or whatever it was. And it doesn't just have to do with queerness or sexuality or anything like that. Yep. But holding on to a secret and you being an elder or a contemporary, maybe yep. being aware of that secret, but neither side is willing to actually have a conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. It's interesting because for me, I feel like Let's say now that I'm the oldest now and I have younger people in my life, <clears throat> I never know, right? So even when people say, oh, I've been new. No, they you didn't know. Two, right. are right. No no, not, not
0: in their head. Exactly. Right. Exactly.
1: exactly. And so I actually appreciate that they don't do that because one, I may not be thinking about it and go, wait, what? You, you think I'm gay, right? And depending on my understanding of that and how I accepted or not, I could be really upset, I'm now I'm alarmed, or maybe I'm not ready to have a conversation, right? And so I like to think that my mom didn't come to me about it because she wanted me to navigate my process, right? And she knew that when I was ready, I'd come to her, right? Mm. And as I look back on my childhood, I got bullied a lot for people thinking I was gay. And so I do remember her saying, like, is there anything you want to share with me? She would ask me that question, and I go, no. You know, because at that point, no, there was nothing. <laughs> like, you I'm good. Yeah. And, and so I appreciated her now not doing that because it allowed me to come into it on my own, right? And my time versus being kind of forced out in a way because you're yeah. directly asking me and forcing me to give you an answer. So I like to think that people don't do that because they just like that, that's your business, right? And I want you to come to me when you want to.
0: I'm, I'm going to come back to your mom in a minute. But. <laughs> Do you still encounter or have you become friends with any of the people that bullied you in the past? I
1: have no idea where any of them are. <laughs> that was like in, in like middle school. I've school actually Instagram looked up them up sometime, but I've never found them.
0: <laughs> okay. If one of them was to hit you up and be like, Oh, Cornell, blah blah blah, and apologize, how do you mm. think that would make you feel?
1: Oh, I think that would bring tears to my eyes. Because I know what it takes for me to own my stuff and to apologize and to be able to come to that wherewithal, to be able to go, yo, I caused you harm and to reach out, right? It's one thing to go, yo, I caused them harm, but then you reached out to say, yo, I'm sorry. That would bring tears to my eyes because that's the healing that this society needs. Right? right? Like we all need our abusers, our oppressors to, to acknowledge that pain and go, I'm sorry. So that we can actually move on.
0: I feel that. I was talking to somebody recently who doesn't have a much of a relationship with their father and recently wrote a book. And I was like, Mm -hmm. so now that you finished this writing process, have you forgiven him? And Mm -hmm. he was like, there was no need to forgive. He was like, I've accepted. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and I was like, oh, well, there is a fine line between acceptance and forgiveness.
1: That's so interesting. I have a friend of mine who says forgiveness isn't always about the other person because I have a hard time forgiving, (laughs) right? I see you. But she's always telling me forgiveness isn't always about them, right? It's not about releasing them of accountability. It's about allowing you to. And I think she would, if I had to make a guess, I think she would equate them to be the same forgiveness and acceptance, right? I'm accepting that this happened. I'm accepting that this is the impact that it had and I'm choosing not to allow it to control me, right? That's how she tends to kind of talk about it. It's not necessarily for them and their ability to move on about you not allowing this thing to own you anymore. I also believe that forgiveness, if I can forgive you, but it doesn't mean that you have space at my table again. Mm. A lot of people believe that if you forgive me, then we're good now. We're besties again. We're friends again. Right. Not necessarily. Right? My dad's sister oftentimes critiques me a lot about this because my dad's mom has always treated us, my dad's kids, like garbage compared to how she treated my cousins, my dad's sister's kids. And I have forgiven her. I don't wish her ill will. I don't think about her. I don't think about those moments. But when I see you, no, that's not our relationship. You don't have a seat at my table anymore. I'm good, right? But she doesn't see that as forgiveness. Like, no, forgiveness does not require me to allow you back in my circle.
0: Yeah, I feel that. And you're absolutely right. Circling back to your mom for a second is, mm -hmm. uh, how does she interact with your husband? Like, Oh my they God, the right they, they
1: they love each other. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> she'll text him. And mind you, when I brought him home before I proposed to him, my mom was turning 51 and I, we were throwing a surprise birthday party for her. And I brought him to Jersey with me to meet the family for the first time. Mm-hmm. Instant click, instant connection. And my mom's a shy individual. Like she's not the kind of black mom that anybody she connects with. So for her to be this Connected to him, I was like, oh, this is a sign. She was like, hey, baby. And I was like, what? So, yeah, she adores him.
0: That's amazing. And, him. and you are clearly enjoying married life very much.
1: I am. It's our work. It ain't easy. We have our couples therapy that we go to every Wednesday. And it, it is work. It is work.
0: What has been the biggest joy? Biggest, I just combined the words challenge and joy. What has been uh-huh, the biggest... Yeah joy and the biggest challenge of being married?
1: I'll start with the challenge. I think the biggest challenge is merging how we navigate the world, right? He's a very positive, kind of like let stuff roll off his back. Everything bothers me for the most part. I hold on to a lot of that energy and he can kind of just move on. I'm like, it's three days later and I'm still upset about some things really coming to to just kind of understand how each other navigate situations and why, and things that sort. It's also helpful to know that we met, started dating, got engaged and got married all in the same year. So we didn't really get to do the things that other couples who date for five years and then get engaged, Hey, we ran right into marriage. And so we're learning all those things about each other. So that's the biggest challenge. The biggest joy for me is having someone to experience life with, to go on trips with, to just do things. Like I have my partner who, when we go somewhere, it's us. Everyone else is an addition, right? Right. But we're experiencing this together. We, we recently, not recently, but a couple of months ago, went to Paris and London And he always wanted to go to Paris with his significant other. I've always wanted to just travel with a significant other. And so to be able to have those experiences with each other and make those memories, to me, is like one of the biggest joys.
0: That's amazing. If I remember correctly, I've been seeing a couple of Instagram pictures in the past of y'all throwing down in the kitchen or challenging each other in the kitchen. That was... (laughs)
1: So one of my friends, she did a cook-off with her husband. I was like, oh, that's dope. And so we did one where we got to choose each other's ingredients. And then with the rest of the stuff that was in the kitchen, we had to make something. He won (laughs) because everyone else liked his better. And I was like, whatever. He's much better. Like He cooks from scratch. I attribute most of my weight gain over the pandemic to his cooking. He will completely deny it. But I'm like, no. He's from Mexico, so makes lots of good Mexican food, and he's just a great cook. And I am like, "Oh, what did you put in that sauce?" He's like, "I don't know. I was just grabbing stuff." I'm like, "See, that's how people cook.
0: That's amazing. Absolutely amazing." I love it. I love it. See, y'all got talking about that, and I lost my next question. <laughs> 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 oh, well, outside of your partner, how mm-hmm. important is it for you to have? Like again, this could just be the things Mike has been thinking about a lot podcast. How important is it for you to have a tribe? Like people who yeah. are like your people.
1: It's really, really, really important. And it's actually something I've been reflecting a lot on what friendship means to me and who's a part of my tribe and who I trust and Things that are, I don't know if that is typical for when you're getting almost to 40 you start reflecting on your relationships with people, but that's where I've been because it's really important to me. The average human needs a tribe, but even the work that I do, which can be so taxing and so frustrating, having that tribe is what saves me, right? Having those people who, even if they don't get it, there's space to lean on, the space to listen, sort of support and challenge, right, is very, very critical. I've gotten to a point where if there's not trust there and I've attempted to build it, I kind of put space between you and I, right? And that's family <laughs> that blood, that's friends, that's everybody, right? Because I'm trying to protect my energy. I'm trying to protect my space and fill it with people who up level and bring joy and things of that sort. So
0: it's so important, I think, A, to realize that not everyone is deserving of your space. That's right. Then I I, like, there's still a part of me that's people pleaser. And is like, well, Mike, you shouldn't put this person at a distance for whatever reason, guilty Mm -hmm. conscience, people pleasing, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. But
1: yeah.
0: And it feels selfish. And one thing I try to tell other people and I try to tell myself too, is that selfishness is not inherently a bad thing.
1: That's right. Because when you choose to go on vacation over staying at work, when you choose to take a, some a, a time over spending time with your kids or spending time with your son, that's you choosing yourself. That's you being selfish, right? Because you need that time for yourself. And it makes you a better person in order to tap Brown writes about this in her book. Right? You gotta take care of yourself first. You're no good to people when you don't have some selfish moment that allows you to step away, take care of yourself so you can come back and be your best self for the people that you love and care for.
0: Amen. Amen. Hey, how do you, how do you suggest people get to that point? Because circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning about conditioning, right? Like people yeah. are not taught these things. They're actually almost right. taught the opposite.
1: Right. Right. I think it comes with a sense of self-awareness, right? I have to be aware of what I need. I have to be aware of the, of the problem Right, So for me, it's like I get stressed out. I get anxiety, all kinds of things. And recognizing and acknowledging that I don't want to actually live this way. This doesn't make me happy. This is actually what I want. And it's that vision that is the motivation for me to go, that's the life I want to live. I want to be happy. I want to laugh more than I cry. Unless I'm crying from laughing, right? nothing wrong with being upset, nothing wrong with all the emotions, but I don't want to be angry 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. I want to be laughing most of the time. And so I think it comes with a strong sense of awareness and acceptance of the problem, of the situation, acknowledging what it is that you actually want, and then reteaching yourself to be okay with doing the things you need to do to get where you need to get to. And surrounding yourself with people who reinforce that for you, who model it for you. So a lot of times, When I post things on Instagram about me talking about how I took time for myself or I did this or what people are like, yo, I love seeing this. You're inspiring me to do the same thing. You tend to be who you connect with. If all your friends are meditators or to make time for themselves and self care, you also take that on because they're modeling what that looks like for you. So your tribe is really, really important. So that takes us to another point. If you're trying to get somewhere else and your current tribe ain't there, or not willing to go on that journey with you, you got to consider, is this the tribe? And that's hard work to go. But these are people I've always known. Yeah, everybody can't come with you in your new season. Sometimes people are met for that season you were in, and now you're ready to go. You can offer the invitation for them to come with you, but if that's not where they want to go, that's okay. Not everybody can come with you, and that's okay. I, I'm just nodding my head. Okay. <laughs> right? like, it's okay. And again, I love Tabitha Brown. She talked about this in her book, where she kept trying to show people this vision of her, her for her career, and other people just couldn't see it. Couldn't see it. They're like no, 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 no. And she used to get so frustrated with why people couldn't see it, and she's a very Religious person, so she was like, "Because God gave me the vision." He was like, "This ain't for them to see. I gave it to you." And I think it's the same thing: Buddha, Allah, the universe, whatever you call it. Right? When people aren't understanding where you're trying to go, that makes sense because it's not for them; it's for you. You've got to have the wherewithal to know that everyone ain't coming with you. Keep marching forward.
0: You ever thought about being a therapist, Cornell?
1: I actually have. Actually, I was actually looking at programs. It's like. There are days when I'm like, why am I doing doing this D-I-B work? I'm tired. It ain't going nowhere. It's really frustrating. And so I'm like, what else could I do? And I did think about therapy, but I don't know if I want to go back to school again. So we'll see what happens.
0: Because <laughs> I feel like I'm sitting with my therapist right now. having a good that. session.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. But that's what good dialogue and good yeah. friendship can feel like. It can feel therapeutic.
0: That's right. You know? That's yeah. right. And I guess that ties into my ultimate question which is what do you see as the next step in your evolution? It could be personal evolution, professional mm-hmm. evolution. If Cornell is level six Cornell right now, mm. what is inspiring Cornell to get to level seven? What does level seven look like?
1: Yeah. What's a really good question. And I, it's funny that I've been thinking about it a lot. Professionally, it's getting to the next level in my career of, of in terms of title, right? So right now I'm at a director level. So I'm looking at VP roles. I'm looking at chief diversity officer roles. I want to have more influence to be able to do the things that I know needs to get done, which I can't do in the role that I'm in, right? Or at the level that I'm at. And I know that in order to get into those roles, it requires a certain sort of public perception of, uh, and sort of brand around thought leadership. And so I, I want to write more. I want to do more mm. research, original research that helps to fuel the field that I'm in of best practices or things we can be doing to help move the needle. So this a doctorate really wasn't about the degree. It was more about the skill of being able to do research. Obviously, the title helps to influence people accepting your research because you have a doctorate. But it's really about how can I contribute to the work that may not necessarily be an in-house role of me being someone she direct, but it still helps move the needle and contributes to the field. So I think it's just churning out more deliverables, right, that helps expand it. And I think the next thing I would say is... Uh, not allowing the behavior of other people to impact me so much. Mm. That's a big thing me and my therapist are working on right now. People mistreat me or say certain things, or I see certain things on TV or whatever, and I'm so deeply impacted by it. I'm still pissed about something that happened to me 20 years ago. right? I want to get to a point where I go, yep, I acknowledge that that you you did that. I'm not letting that impact how I show up in other spaces or how I see myself in that, to me, would be a major, like, that, to me, that's level eight. That's <laughs> level eight. If I, I can get there, you. that would be amazing.
0: It, and I, actually, now I have, like, one last question because yeah, going please. back to the dissertation work, do you like research? I do, actually. I'm having a lot of fun
1: writing this proposal of my design of my study because I was a wedding planner for eight years. So I love system. I love like all the pieces. How do we get to this ultimate goal of understanding these research questions? And what will it take to get there? It's frustrating as hell, but I geek out over it. Like I will sit in this office and spend hours just like, oh, we could do this and do that. And you see behind me, I have so much fun, so much fun. So I see myself doing more research projects like this.
0: I find that interesting just because there is a fair amount of research I do for fun purposes or for Mm -hmm. whether it's for the podcast or for any other thing that I do, but I always kind of equate it with this is your 10th grade literature paper. And (laughs) for the young folks listening, this is before Google or Wikipedia. Uh So you got to go to the library and find stuff. stuff, the that you had in the house because your mom bought a whole set. The whole set. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And, look, everybody's different, but that, to me, was never fun. Mm, It was tedious. I always loved
1: it. I always loved it. I was the one that asked my teacher for old workbooks so that over the summer, I could do them or, like, play school with my siblings.
0: I love it. Cornell was overachieving.
1: That was me. And it's funny because in, I think it was middle school... I would take those career tests that told you what kind of career and educator was always number one. Education and law were one and two. And, I see that too. And, right. And here I am, I'm an educator, right? That is through and through who I am. It's not in the traditional sense in terms of in the classroom. I've been in the classroom, but I, I, I'm an educator. So I really step into that in a major way. So I, I look for opportunities to help people understand something and create space for folks to learn and have aha moments.
0: Yeah, educator means so many different things. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that you're standing in a classroom with a piece of chalk in front of a board.
1: Right, right. And look, now there's even chalk. It's a dry eraser marker. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, Maybe showing my like, age. Between the,
0: between the, the chalkboard
1: erasers. You clap together. That's that, like... right.
0: That's right. I am dating myself so bad it's not even. Fun. Likewise, bro. Like, <laughs> right. and, I, and I was going
1: to go. Yeah, I'll do it. And
0: I... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep, stand in the back of the classroom and just clap them damn erases together, make clouds. Uh-huh. Yep, 100%. clean the chalkboard on Friday so that we came back it was clean. Clean for on Monday. Monday. That's right. Uh-huh. That's yep. right. First off, endless thanks to Cornell. A lot of these times when I do this podcast, I feel like I'm having the right conversation at the right time, which is kind of part of the reason why I keep doing these. And this conversation with Cornell really feel like it hit at the most opportune time it possibly could have hit. I am so grateful to you for your friendship, Cornell, and also that you're interested in dropping these pearls of wisdom uh, and sharing your experience for others. First of all, uh, find Headspace if you are trying to meditate, trying to figure out how that works out for you. Headspace is a meditation and sleep app. You can find it at www.headspace.com. You can download the app from whatever app store you're using, if you have an iPhone or an Android phone, whatever. Headspace is a good app. I have used it. Uh, I used it before I knew Cornell, so there is no influence happening there, and uh, you should check it out. Meanwhile, Cornell also uh, runs a business called Brave Trainings. Um, He does uh, uh, workshops based around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So check out bravetrainings.com. The tagline is Promoting Authentic Social Justice Dialogue. Make sure you check him out. And if you're looking for Cornell on the socials, you can find him on Instagram at itsmecornell. And you can find him on Twitter at Nelly GD, N-E-L-L-Y-G-D. Cornell, thank you again. Can't wait to have you on for a third time, and uh, we'll be talking soon. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on, uh, Rate. Comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash Detoxicity Pod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool ass sticker, lots of stuff. Once again, Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. Quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and, uh, doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time, peace.